Welcome, everyone, to our quarterly community gathering. And this is our opportunity um, to take what is often an individual practice of looking into the heart or looking into the mind and acknowledging together as a community some of the principles that we have discovered in our own practice that that's useful to remember you know and if we together acknowledge that this is what we're learning this is what we're discovering in our path if we do that out loud together it's easier to remember just like if you tell a good friend you know I'm really going to be careful about this in my life will you help me remember that and the friend says okay or in the ancient texts one of the things that they had associated with taking the refuges was this phrase thus may you know me so I take refuge in this path of awakening thus may you know me or I take refuge in the precepts of non-harming thus may you know me like let me know if you're seeing something that's not in alignment with that it's not even so much that we depend on other people to say things but just saying it out loud together it makes it makes that intention in our mind stronger if we speak out loud our intention it has a little bit it's not so easy to forget it if we if we've said it out loud Some of you are in the Buddhist studies class that meets on Monday nights, and we're reading um, Sylvia Burstein's book. I'm forgetting the name now. Anybody remember it? Pay attention for goodness. Thanks, Gal. Pay attention for goodness sakes. And <laughs> <laughs> I should say that some people are reading the book, and others of us have read it a long time ago. <laughs> Anyway, in, in one of those chapters near the beginning, she talks about, she tells a story about having gone on her first meditation retreat and there on the mantle was a little, they were just practicing in somebody's home. So there's a fireplace, a little mantle and there's a little sign up on the wall and it said something, um, the world is so difficult, how can, it, how can we be anything but kind or something like that? The world is so difficult, how can we be anything but kind? And it's not, you know, the phrase like that isn't to be used to beat ourselves up because we aren't kind, but to be actually interested in how it is that we're not kind in this world, where when we do look around and we see so much suffering in our own hearts and around us, it just seems amazing that in the next moment we can act out of irritation or act out of greed or anger. Quinn and I took a nice peaceful walk earlier this morning and uh, <laughs> as we were walking there's some mud on the sidewalk and uh, <laughs> I, I wanted to avoid it because I had slippery pair of shoes on and I was kind of pushing Wynn and she was really in the middle of saying something important <laughs> and I don't think she was aware that I was like wanting more space and so I almost slipped and fell and uh, but I noticed right after that happened I got really angry I don't know if you noticed. <laughs> I mean, it was so ridiculous, but there it was. You know, 
here's a human being who's just trying to do the best she can do, and, and this is this other human being trying to be- do the best he can do. And then these circumstances can arise, and there can be a very powerful flash of anger. Fortunately, I, I don't think I acted it out too much, maybe a little bit. But just to, to see how easy it is and how important it is for us to reflect about that. And so today I wanted to talk mostly about the precepts for just 10 minutes or so, 15 minutes, because this too is a, uh, an important refuge and really understanding that there we have these rules or this uh, these aspirations not to harm other living beings or not to take things that aren't freely offered but they're mostly it's mostly a training mechanism it's not something just to like judge ourselves okay these people are on this side of the line and these people are on that side of the line which is generally what we do when we have any moral construct, you know, we use it to divide up the world or to say we're good or we're bad. But it's really meant to be a training mechanism, like to highlight that question, how can we be anything but kind? Like how is it that that red-hot anger arises in just a moment? How does that come to be? How is that possible that in this situation where everyone's doing the best they can and, you know, and not only that, we we have we really like each other and get along well. That even there, really strong aversion can arise. How is that possible? Sharon has a phrase. I think it's Sharon Salzberg, but I'm not positive. Where she's talking about our ancestral ignorance. You know what we pass on one generation after another, and it revolves around this burden of self-importance. So this is what we're passing on, that somehow we infect each generation with a strong sense of self-importance. And this feeling then creates the ground for greed and anger, because once there's a strong sense of self-importance, then we feel we have to protect whatever we feel is important. And we have to feed whatever we think is important. Feed it with what we think we need, like, I need your respect, or I need your gratitude, or I need your undying devotion, or whatever we might think we need from others. I need your understanding. Even something that seems so wholesome like that, like, of course it's appropriate for us to demand that people understand us. But when we see how that is arising from a sense of self-importance, and how we're inevitably frustrated, and how we inevitably create ripples of violence and aversion and greed in the world that just disturbs everybody else, then we can begin to reflect about another possibility. So when we take on the five precepts that we'll read together a little bit later this morning, the precept of not harming, of not taking anything that isn't offered to us, not Uh, engaging in sexual misconduct, not speaking in a way that harms other beings or uh, sort of produces a lack of clarity, not not speaking the truth or coloring the truth, not speaking the whole truth, and using intoxicants or using substances in a way that cloud the mind. There's already so much clouding in the mind, we don't need, doesn't need support. 
So taking on these five precepts then becomes this wonderful training mechanism because because we've committed to this, and especially committed to this in a community, in a group of friends, then when we're in a situation where we feel like it's appropriate to harm, you know, in order to defend ourselves, it feels appropriate to strike back. Or because we feel needy, it feels appropriate to take something even though it wasn't offered to us. Or because we feel the strong pull of sexual energy, we feel it's appropriate to say or do something, even if it might destroy a relationship or cause harm, create suffering, or to say something or to consume something that clouds the mind. We can easily rationalize these things when we're just caught up in our particular frame of reference or particular self-importance. But when we have these training mechanisms, when we've committed to not harming, to not stealing, not taking things that aren't offered, and so on, then it, it just creates a little bit of a, a space for awareness. It like uh, rings that mindfulness bell, and then we have an opportunity, like I had earlier this morning, to just notice the inc uh, incongruence between the strong feeling of irritation and the whole context of the present moment, which is, here's one suffering being, here's another suffering being, here's a moment, you know, here's whatever feelings that I had in my heart. It's just all of this. And in, in, in that context, in that gap, that moment of mindfulness, that, that uh, rush of irritation is seen as nothing to bring into action. It's just like ancient ancestral ignorance. You know, it, it, it belongs there because it's been conditioned. It has its own momentum. Hating it is just continuing the pattern. So we, we welcome it in a sense, allow it to come in, but we don't feel like it doesn't like hook the self-importance where we feel like we have to do something with it. Because I'm feeling this anger or irritation, and because it gets tied into this deep pattern of self-importance, self-protection, self-expression, then if we're there, then we have to act it out. Why didn't you move over? Did you see? You know, did you notice? How could you miss that? <laughs> Although it makes perfect sense. It does. <laughs> no, really, it does. I mean, it's so silly. That's why I'm bringing it up. I feel like unless we do this consciously, one way or another, this isn't obviously, this isn't the only way to remind ourselves, but unless we as human beings set up these training mechanisms, these commitments to not harm, basically these commitments to not act out our self-importance in ways that are destructive. I mean, that's really what it comes down to. So we commit together that we're going to practice, and it is a practice, we're going to practice as if everybody's safety is equally important. Everybody's well-being is equally important. See, it doesn't neglect, it as, uh, neglect us at all. We're equally important. Our well-being is equally important. So we're not neglecting ourselves. It's not like even a sense of, oh, I'll sacrifice myself for the whole. 
we're just including everybody. And uh, obviously because of the proximity of our life, right, we're, we're in a sense more responsible for our own well-being. But in any one moment, right there in that moment, there are other beings. And then, of course, through ripple effects, we affect, we really do affect all beings. And so in that sense, we are committing to being responsible to all beings' well-being and not preferring one over the other. This is an aspiration. Obviously, it isn't easy. But then then we understand these training mechanisms because that aspiration to be responsible for the well-being of all beings, that is a direct, directly opposed to the way we've been programmed, this ancestral ignorance of self-importance. That somehow this being stands apart and that it somehow justified harming other beings to take care of this being. And it's a bit of a paradox because we do end up harming other beings taking care of this being. So we don't need to have an answer for how to manifest this aspiration, not to harm, not to steal, and then specifically not harming with sexual energy, with speech, through the use of intoxicants or through the consumption of things that cloud the mind. We don't need to have an answer, but just to somehow highlight our life and highlight those places where that Uh, where that is really possible. And I think it teaches us something about mindfulness, something really important. Ajahn Chah, this great Thai Buddhist monk and meditation teacher, and one of the teachers of so many of the Western Dharma teachers, he said, if we are still following our likes and dislikes, we haven't really begun to practice. If we are still following our likes and dislikes, we haven't really begun to practice. And so this training mechanism that we call the precepts, or these mindfulness trainings that we call the precepts, not harming, not stealing, they're really just a chant or an opportunity to see our likes and dislikes and to inspire a moment of mindfulness whenever our likes and dislikes are clear in our life. Oh. I really want this. I really don't like this. And then in those moments where we're liking or not liking something, then that, that is the moment when that ancestral ignorance has been stimulated and it's come to the surface. Whenever there's strong liking and disliking. The path the Buddha teaches is not a path where there isn't liking and disliking. Because that would be a human being who doesn't have ancestral ignorance. But I don't know if that's possible to be a human being without that ancestral ignorance. But I do, it does seem to me, from my own practice and from other people's practice, it seems very possible to be a human being with that ancestral ignorance, but, it, but understanding it. So we're not confused by those, those forces, those emotional forces that arise, that fear, that basic fear or defensiveness, or anger, or neediness. So there is that ancestral ignorance that we're less and less confused by it because we have systematically practiced seeing it and getting to know it 
and not judging it, not reacting to it, but choosing instead the path of understanding. So our path isn't about destroying the ancestral ignorance. Our path is about understanding it. We take on situations that help us see it. When has been talking a lot lately about her new job where she uh, is working at a middle school and a high school and talking a lot about what gets triggered being there with youngsters, young adults, who are very comfortable hating who's ever in front of them or reacting or, you know, dismissing. You know, all the things that teenagers can do or do all the time when they're not into what's going on. It's just, uh, as adults, we tend to cover it up a little bit more, you know, when we're bored or, or whatever. But teenagers, for some reason, don't feel like they have to or don't want to. And then, and then all the stuff that that triggers. And, you know, in my own life, being part of a growing organization and all the tension that's involved in the organization, all the different layers, all the different forces, and all the responsibilities perceived and not, you know, real and maybe not real, and just feeling, seeing all the stuff that that triggers in me, all the fear that it triggers, especially. And it's, you know, Wynne and I, because we talk a lot about our practice and our suffering together, you know, it's like we see, and we talked about this this morning, you know, there's a tendency to uh, massage, to make our practice look like it justifies escaping from the messy world. Oh, I need to go on retreat. I need, we need to buy land in the country, you know, where we can just be left alone. <laughs> and I'm sure you're laughing because it's a very intoxicating idea of spiritual life. And even our sitting practice can look that way. Like we're sitting here, just get me out of this. Like get me out of this mind, this busy mind, this crazy mind, this worrying, planning, judging, comparing mind. Or this painful body, you know, anywhere but here. <laughs> yes, I want Nibbana. But, you know, obviously, hopefully, it's obvious, or at least it's a growing recognition that this isn't the path. It's not a path of idealism or utopia. I was telling Wynne this morning in our walk about this article I read recently where Stephen Mitchell, he's a well-known translator, probably you've heard of him or some of you have heard of him or read some of his translations of various things. And he has a quite substantial practice um, as a Buddhist, as a Zen Buddhist. And, uh, and one of the things his teacher said early on that he had only three jobs, kill the Buddha, kill your parents, and kill the teacher. And this teacher, his teacher, was kind of provocative in that way. And he also didn't have very good English. He was from Korea. So he had to speak in very simple terms. <laughs> he has a book, a famous book called If You See the Buddha on the Road, Kill It, or something like that. Um, but anyway, so killing the Buddha means killing any idealism about our spiritual path. Like any idealism about what, what enlightenment means, what uh, freedom means. It's not about somehow getting out of our life. It's about being free in our life. Being able to be completely open and undefended right in the middle of the messiness of our lives. 
like a not knowing what to do of our lives. When and I saw an old friend last night who's got a teenage daughter who's just, I, I've met this girl because uh, she's interviewed me a couple times for paper she was writing. She has had an interest in Buddhism ever since she was even younger. Now I think she's 16 or 17 and and uh, she's just a real trip. She was so precocious when I met her four, three or four years ago and uh, we've kind of been following her since she was born, really, right? Um, and this woman, this friend of ours, is like really at her wit's end. <laughs> just like figuring out how is she going to survive. And, you know, just seeing that, and it is great hearing from our friend, like she's really committed to showing up. That's about all she knows now. She doesn't have a lot of clarity about how she should show up, what she should do, what she should don't, not do, whether she should be tougher or, you know. But one thing she does know is, I'm really going to show up. You know, I'm just going to keep showing up. I'm not giving up. And uh, I think this is really useful, too, with these precepts of not harming, not, not taking things, not acting out greed in the world, in our lives, in our minds. That we don't need to understand how that is. We don't need to feel defeated because there is a lot of irritation or anger or fear or there is a lot of neediness and longing and lust. But that we just keep showing up, like keep willing, being willing to see it over and over again, just to see it. And in our own little way to relax a little bit or to let it in or to be a little bit less defended, a little bit more undefended with this ancestral ignorance. And to practice, as the Buddha summed up his practice, you've heard this, many of you have heard this statement of the Buddha's, the supreme state of sublime peace has been discovered by the Tathagata. He called himself the Tathagata, one thus gone, which is, I thought, a very interesting way to refer to yourself, one thus gone. Or probably we could say, one not caught up in clinging. So he said, the supreme state of sublime peace has been discovered, namely liberation through non-clinging. So this is the sum of the path. Liberation, the freedom is the freedom in not clinging, not grasping, not reacting. So we have these opportunities when we take on the precepts formally together, aspiring to live a life of non-harming aspiring to live a life free of neediness, free of craving or stealing, taking things that aren't given. And this, this means everything. Any kind of the mind indulging in something, like where we look at somebody that's attractive to us, or we indulge in a fantasy, we're kind of feeding off of that in a way we're taking something, we're trying to squeeze something out of something in a way that's not being freely offered to us. So the stealing and the harming, of course, exists on the most obvious levels of hurting somebody or actually stealing something that's not ours. But it exists on very subtle levels of taking things, where we take somebody's time that's not being freely offered. And this practice of not clinging, 
this, like I mentioned a few minutes ago, this really supports our understanding of what mindfulness practice is, the basic path that we're all, I think, interested in, which is a path of using awareness to illuminate the moment. So we're using this capacity to know, to be awake, to illuminate all the different forces that are alive in the moment. So this really helps us because there's sort of a stereotype that mindfulness or meditation practice is about retreating to some peaceful place. Now it's true, at times, that's what arises. We do our practice, we're following the breath, and we do get into a peaceful place. But even there in that peaceful place, the practice is to really aspire to awaken to all the forces that are there. So even when we are fortunate for a really peaceful mind state to arise in our meditation practice or just in our daily life, we still have this aspiration to be awake to all the forces, so to really see the force of calmness or gratitude or forgiveness or whatever wholesome state might be present, to wake up to it fully, completely, and to see it for what it is and to understand what it's not. So it's not just the unwholesome states that we aspire to be awake for, but all states, good and bad, wholesome and unwholesome, pleasant and unpleasant. And I'll just end by reminding us that there's this very poignant set of teachings um, that the Buddha gave his son, Rahula. Some of you remember this story. Um, after the Buddha's deep insight, he began his 40-some year of teaching and slowly collected students. And after a couple years, after his deep insight, when he started teaching, he wandered through the town where he would, had been born and had been a prince. And there he met, of course, a lot of his relatives, including his, for, his former wife and his son, who he never really got to know, Rahula. And when he was in town there, his wife said to his son, go and collect your inheritance. <laughs> so his son, who was like seven at the time, you know, goes to the Buddha and says, well, my mom said, I'm supposed to collect my inheritance. And so the Buddha ordained him as a novice monk. And he started living with the Buddha and with the Buddha's other students. And a few years after that, Buddha gave him this famous teaching. So he's like 10 now or 9 years old. And it's a, such a simple but beautiful teaching. And so they're washing the bowls after they've eaten their meal. And, you know, swishing the water around. And the Buddha dumps some of the water out. And there's just a little water left. And, and he says to Rahula, his son, you see the little water that's left in the bowl? And Rahula goes, yeah. He says, well, that's what... A your practice, that's what a person's practice is like if they ever justify not telling the truth. And then he tosses the water out of the last of the water out of the voice. He says, you see how empty this is? And Rahula says, yeah. He said, that's how your mind and heart is if you can ever justify for any reason not telling the truth. And then he flips the bowl over and he says the same thing. You know, you see how it's, the whole bowl has been tipped over? And then he says, he says, Anything can happen. If you can justify telling a lie, not speaking the truth, you can justify anything. He says something like that to Rahula. And then he goes on to give this famous teaching in terms of any action, in terms of thought, in terms of speech, in terms of some deed. So we're acting out. So even as subtle as an action in the mind only, or just with words only, or the whole body involved in some action, he gives him this basic instruction, which is, 
before you think, say, or do anything, while you're thinking, saying, or doing something, and after you've thought something, said something, done something, you should be reflecting in this way. You should be reflecting, is what I'm about to think, or what I am thinking, or what I just thought, what I'm about to say, what I am saying, what I just said, what I am, what I'm about to do, what I am doing, what, I'm, what I just did, is this going to be a cause for harm for me, or for another, or for both? If it is, then we should abandon it. Or if we've already done it, then we should confess to some good friend. If it is wholesome, if it isn't going to be conducive to harm for myself or others or both, then I should continue with it if I'm in the middle of it, or I should do it. Or if I've already done it, I should notice how having done something wholesome is a cause for joy. Like right now, in hindsight, remembering that I did something that was wholesome for myself or others, or both, is a cause for joy. So basically, it gives us a sense of the pervasiveness of reflection, like mindfulness or reflection. It's not a passive thing where we're just sort of hearing a sound. But there's a very active part in mindfulness. It's an active discernment of skillfulness and unskillfulness about what's arising in the heart. So in any moment of our life, because we've been conditioned, we're conditioned beings, in any moment, whatever's happening, it's triggering our ancestral conditioning. And a lot of that conditioning is unwholesome. It's ignorance. So mindfulness is being keenly aware and discerning what's being triggered and what, and if what's being triggered is wholesome or unwholesome. Is it going to be the cause for suffering for me or others or not? If it is going to be the cause for suffering, then we do whatever we can to abandon it, to not act it out, to not think it, to not say it, to not do it. But if it appears like it isn't going to be the cause for suffering, then we let it come into action. But we continue to observe even after the fact to see, because we might have thought it wasn't going to be the cause for harm, but then after the fact we see, oh, this did cause suffering. And then we learn from it. And then the Buddha ends this talk to Rahula by saying, any saintly wise people in the past, in the present, or in the future, they've, their freedom, their wisdom has come about through this process of reflection. There's no other way, basically, he said. That this is how people become saints or holy or good people, is through this ongoing process of reflection of the skillfulness or unskillfulness of what's arising in the heart. So I'll pass out the sheets for the refuges and precepts now. And this is about a 10-minute recitation. And we do it in the Pali language because this is the way it's been done in all different cultures. I mean, nobody spoke in Pali probably for 2,300 years. So the Pali language, in a way, we're connecting to a bigger group of people that have, as a community, made a commitment to taking refuge in awareness and these teachings that point to this path of awareness and to the community that supports it and to these five mindfulness trainings that I've been talking about today, the precepts.
So, as some of you know, we always read Thich Nhat Hanh's commentary after we do each of the precepts. So we need five people to volunteer to read each of the five comments that Thich Nhat Hanh has. So if anybody would like to read the first uh, reflection of Thich Nhat Hanh after the first precept. Anybody want to do that? Want to do that, Marianne? Thanks. And somebody do the second. Thanks, Jerry. And somebody to read the third. Thanks, Mona. And number four. Thanks, Maria. And then number five. Thanks, Brenda. You want to ring the bell? So we um, will begin when in a moment we'll ring the bell three times. And then we have this gesture we use at Common Ground. It's not really a formal bow. It's actually called Anjali, and it's used in the East a lot. And you just put your hands together, and then you're just bringing your forehead or your nose towards the tops of the fingers. And it's a simple gesture of either respect or gratitude. So remember, we're not, it's, I mean, it's okay to, re, to externalize what you're grateful for or what you respect, but through the path, through our practice, we're learning to respect ultimately, or first, our aspiration, like the beauty of our own aspiration, like what's alive in our heart. We see it's beautiful and it's to be respected and we, we bow down to it or we make a gesture of respect to it. And then even beyond that, we can learn to touch right in that moment what it is that we're grateful for. and. This is something we generally don't put into words, but you could call it whatever you want to call it. But we bow down to that. But we find that right in the heart. We don't find it outside of ourselves, even though we may use symbols like, you know, a picture of Jesus or the Buddha statue or whatever people might use to represent that. So we use Anjali as a way to begin and then also as a, a way to end. And then even through the chanting, if you'd like, you can maintain Anjali. You don't have to have your forehead down, but you can just maintain Anjali if you like. And you can just use that gesture if you find it useful. And if you're new to the Pali language, don't worry. It repeats itself so much that you'll pick it up pretty quick, I think. And all the instructions are just here. So you just follow along with us, and we'll do this reflection. It's not just a recitation, but we're actually using our mind to reflect on what we're chanting. So the English is there as well as the Pali. And we'll be chanting together anything that's in italics. So any questions before we begin? Good. So we'll begin with three bells then. Some, uh, some. 
in the Buddha, trusting the inherent peace and freedom of non-clinging. And then the second refuge, I take refuge in the Dharma, trusting mindfulness, opening to things as they are. I take refuge in the Sangha, trusting kindness, compassion, empathetic joy, and equanimity. And now we'll begin the five precepts. We'll read the Pali together, then we'll read the English together, and then one person will read the reflection from Thich Nhat Hanh, this Vietnamese teacher. So we'll do the first now. Panatipata veramani sikapadam samadhyami I undertake the training to refrain from harming living beings. Aware of the suffering caused by the destruction of life, I am committed to cultivating compassion and learning ways to protect the lives of all beings. I am determined not to kill, not to let others kill, and not to condone any act of killing anyone. In my thinking and in my way of life, this is the first of the five mindfulness trainings. I vow to study and practice it. Now the second. Adinadana veramani sikapadam samadhyami. I undertake the training to refrain from taking that which is not given. Aware of the suffering caused by exploitation, social injustice, stealing, and oppression, I am committed to cultivating loving kindness and learning ways to work for the well-being of all beings. I will practice generosity by sharing my time, energy, and material resources with those who are in real need. 
and determined not to steal and not to possess anything that should belong to others. I will respect the property of others, but I will prevent others from profiting from the human suffering or the suffering of other species on earth. This is the second from five, five mindfulness trainings I vow to study and practice. Now the third. Kamesu Mitchachara Veramani Sikapadang Samadhyami. I undertake the training to refrain from causing harm through sexual misconduct. And now the fourth. Musawada Veramani Sikapadang Samadhyami. I undertake the training to refrain from false speech. And now the fifth. Sura Maria Majapamadatana Veramani Sikapadam Samadhyami. I undertake the training to refrain from the misuse of intoxicants. Aware of the suffering caused by unmindful consumption and committed to the cultivation of good health, both physical and mental. 
for myself, my family, and my society by practicing mindful eating, drinking, and consuming. I will ingest only items that preserve peace, well-being, and joy in my body, in my consciousness, and in the collective body and consciousness of my family and society. I am determined not to misuse alcohol or any other intoxicant or to ingest foods or other items that undermine spiritual growth, such as unwholesome TV programs, magazines, books, films, and conversations. I'm aware that to damage my body or my consciousness with such poisons is to harm all beings. I understand that a proper diet is crucial for self-transformation and for the transformation of society. This is the fifth of the five mindfulness trainings I vow to study and practice. And then we end with these two statements of aspiration. Idam me silam maga palanyana sa pachayo ho tu. May my conduct conduce to attainment of the highest fruits of liberation. And then below, taking the three refuges, undertaking the five mindfulness trainings, and practicing the way of awareness and insight gives rise to benefits without limit. I offer to share all blessings and merit with my parents, teachers, family, friends, and with all beings everywhere. May this life and practice contribute to the great stream of causes and conditions leading to happiness, peace, and liberation for all beings. May all beings be happy. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.com dot org slash donate